Do you know what God finds most beautiful in all the universe? This is an interesting question. And I, I, it's one I, I want you to think through. Do you know what God finds most beautiful in all of the universe? Himself. God finds himself the most beautiful in all the universe. He's completely satisfied and lacks nothing in himself. If he needed something, then the thing he needed would probably be the most beautiful thing in the universe. But he needs nothing outside of himself. Because he is good and kind and generous, he made creatures who could also enjoy his beauty. You might think that sounds a little self-absorbed, but it's not. It's good. If God found anything more beautiful than himself, we should probably have a church worshiping and pursuing that. But he is, without competition, most beautiful in all of existence. Most wonderful, most glorious, most worthy, most good. Okay, here's the second question. What does God find second most beautiful? After himself, what does God find second most beautiful? After himself, what is the most beautiful thing in all of existence? And this one might surprise you, but it's, it's the church. It's the church. He loves the church. This perfect God who doesn't get things wrong. He doesn't think wrong thoughts. He doesn't make mistakes. He looks at the church and loves her. And loves her deeply and fully. How much does he love the church? Look at what he says in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you think God loves the church? He gave himself for her. What kind of church does he want? I mean, look, look at look at Ephesians 26 and 25, 26 and 27. You'll never really understand Easter if you don't understand the beauty of the church. You can't really celebrate Easter if you don't celebrate what Christ did in purchasing the church for himself. Jesus' death and resurrection would have been a fruitless endeavor. What would we be celebrating if from his death and resurrection he didn't save anyone? Jesus lived and died and rose again to accomplish something. There was purpose to what he did. And what was the purpose? What is that thing? What, why did he do it? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, he says. So that the church could be without spot or wrinkle. He died and rose again so that the church would be holy and without blemish. Some of you know how hard it is to get your kids to church on Easter morning with their clothes not having spot or blemish or wrinkle. But truly, Jesus came so that his church he would present to himself beautifully. And to remove the beauty of the church from Easter is to remove the wonder of what Jesus did. 
the one who is most beautiful is beautifying for himself a people. That's what's happening at Easter. That's what we're celebrating. Today, I want to admire God's beauty most of all. We want to do what God does and find him the most beautiful thing in existence. But today, I also want us to admire the beauty of his bride, the church. That's really our main idea today on Easter Sunday. Jesus died and rose again to make for himself a people devoted to his glory. Jesus died and rose again to make for himself a people devoted to his glory. As we look in Revelation today, I would love for you to join me in prayer again. Would you pray with me over our time together in the word? God, we have said the words that you are beautiful and your church is beautiful. But God, I, I ask that that would not just be a mental ascent this morning, but that in the deepest parts of our heart, we would believe that is true. And that you wouldn't just be a reward for us, but that, Jesus, you would be the reward for us. That you would be the defining treasure of our lives. We thank you that in your word, as we're going to see today in Revelation 5, that just as you have won the past, from, from, from the day you died until now, God, we have, we have celebrated the day of your resurrection. But God, even in eternity future, we will be celebrating the lamb who was slain and rose again. Help us to approach your word with that passion and heart and wonder. God, we do love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Revelation, God revealed to John the apostle the scenes from heaven at the end of the world. In Revelation 4, John comes before the throne of God. And now in Revelation 5, where we're picking up today, something amazing. The one on the throne holds a scroll with seven seals. And as he holds it, an angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. We could speculate the meaning of what the scroll and the seals are, but what we know is that they were looking for someone who was worthy. Who could, who could take this from the king sitting on the throne? Who could take the scroll and open the seals? And in chapter 5, verse 3, here's what it says. Here's what God's word says. And no one, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Who was worthy? Who was able? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And John, as he's seeing this, as God is allowing him to see this, John begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But as he cried, one of the elders, one of the men that were around the throne of God here said, look, he's calling out John, look, behold, there's a conquering lion who is able. There is a conquering lion who is able to open the scroll, break the seals. And when John looked, what did he see? He saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. And it walked to the throne and took the scroll. 
Who was this conquering lion? He was the lamb that was slain. Imagine John's surprise to see this slain lamb walking to the throne where this man had just said there will be a conquering lion. But what does conquering look like in God's kingdom? And the men, the elders, and the angels around the throne began to worship this lion of Judah, this lamb who was slain, because he was able to take the scroll. What no one else was able to do, he was able. And that's where we pick up in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you strongly to turn with me here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And those who were around the throne, verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And ever. In verses 9 through 13, there's no way to read that and then deny the beauty and glory of our God. We find this beautiful picture of heaven worshiping Jesus for what he accomplished at Easter. But really, what he accomplished in his life, really, what he accomplished in his nature from eternity past into eternity future. This is who he is. And in this picture, we see that we're we're going to see four things. Jesus is worthy. Jesus paid the ransom. Jesus made the kingdom and Jesus is alive. Would you look at verse nine with me? Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals. Then look at verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus alone is worthy. Jesus alone is worthy. He is worthy of worship and power and wealth and honor and might forever and ever. He is the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. The king who sits on the throne and the immeasurable beauty of God is true in his nature. It is. It's just true in his nature. It exists in his nature, but it is also displayed in his work. God's beauty is displayed in his work. The king who sits on the throne doesn't hide his beauty. He shares it with us. What an amazing gift. He did that most clearly for us and wonderfully in the good news of Jesus. How does he display his glory in sending his only son, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of his nature? 
John in Revelation heard thousands and thousands of angels, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. They were all proclaiming the worth of God, ascribing blessing and honor and glory and might to his name. And what caused it? Why were they doing this? Why were they, why were they singing and proclaiming worthy is the lamb? What caused it? It was his act of salvation. It was the lamb slaughtered to save a people for himself. That was what was causing this adoration and proclamation. This sacrifice, Jesus sacrificing himself, didn't make God glorious, but because God is glorious, he sacrificed himself. It is from his nature that he acted. His gospel reflects his nature of love and goodness and justice and righteousness and worth. The thing about God's nature is that it is so wonderful that it radiates to the blessing of his creation. It's like the sun's heat and light blessing the earth so the earth can have light and heat. We have light and heat because of what the sun does. It's, it's, it's warmth radiating. But God loves, God's love radiates to us so that we can love. His beauty radiates to us so that we can have beauty. It's because of his glory that he makes himself known to us. The fact that we can talk about who God is, that we can know anything about him, is a result of his glory and that it's radiating out to us that he is making himself known to us. And now we are able to know him and proclaim him because Jesus paid the ransom. Verse 9 says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Just think about the term ransom. You might see that word translated as purchased or redeemed. But a ransom is a price paid to release someone from captivity. A price paid to release someone from captivity. And they were singing in heaven, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. We were all in captivity. Slaves to sin. A slave master we chose. Each of us has chosen sin. Each of us has sinned. Romans says, the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman church says, the wages of sin is what, church? Death. The wages of sin is death. Because we chose sin, because sin is in us from birth, we were destined for sin's wages. We were destined for death. Our captivity would end in death, an eternal separation from God, which is true death, if there wasn't a ransom paid. But Jesus paid the price for our release. Jesus paid the price for our release with the only currency that could buy our freedom, his own perfect blood. What else could do it? Nothing. There's nothing else that could do it. Only his blood could purchase our salvation. And this is the hope of our salvation. This and nothing more. 
that Jesus's blood can save us. That Jesus's blood alone paid the price for our sin. I love to ask the question, how do you know you're saved? How do you know that you're saved? Because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's it. What have you done in that process? I've done nothing. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He shed his blood for me. But you do a lot of good things. That helps you be saved, right? Not at all. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It was his blood that was shed. This isn't the end of your salvation. Jesus didn't just free us from sin's bondage. He made us his own. He claims us. Isn't that good? What if he had just paid our ransom and left us on our own? You're free now. Go do what you want. But he paid our ransom and claimed us. He took us and made us his family. He adopted us into his family. Jesus paid the ransom and he made the kingdom. That's verse 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And this is the church. This is is what he's talking about. This is the church. The church is the kingdom. From every tribe and language and people and nation He is making one people the church. From every tribe and language and people and nation, he is making his kingdom and priests. Christian, by nature of your salvation, you have access to God. He has made you priests. In the Old Testament, the priests had access to God. You had to go through the priests to access God and ask for forgiveness. That is now given to every believer. Each of us has access to God. He has claimed us. He has made you a priest, which means that you can dwell with him. That's the summit of our lives. That we might dwell with our God. He made that possible for us. So he didn't just save us and cast us aside. He saved us for fellowship with him. He saved us to know and enjoy him in his presence. This kingdom God is building, this church for his pleasure, comes from all over the world. In the redemptive arc of history, that wasn't always true. He saved for himself a specific people with specific borders and boundaries. But in Christ, he has made it possible for everyone, wherever they are, whatever they look like, whatever their past, to come to know Christ and be saved and to know him and dwell with him. And if God desires a kingdom made of people from every corner of the world, if if that is what he proclaims, if that is what they are praising God for in heaven, if God desires a kingdom made of every people from every corner of the world, what should be our goal, church? To make disciples of every corner of the world. It should be our vision to see every person in our community and in our world filled with all the fullness of God. That they're not just accompanied by fire insurance throughout their life, but that they are dwelling with God. That they know him, not just here in Union County, but everywhere. 
by nature, by this redemptive nature, by this adoptive nature where we are transformed in his likeness. By nature, we are a missionary people. And that's not a special few with a stomach for travel. Each one of us, every one of us is called to gospel proclamation. It's in our blood. God, our father, is a missionary God. Did he not proclaim himself to us in Christ? Does he not work and move in us through the Holy Spirit? Is the harvest of faith not his? How can we claim him as our king and our father? And then rebel against his nature of saving the lost. How can we claim him as our king and our father and rebel against his command to go? And his commission to be sent. We can celebrate that our God is the one true God who unites all generations, all ethnicities, and all languages. The things the world uses for division, God has designed for unity. We don't need to look alike or have similar cultures or languages to agree in Christ. To celebrate what he's done around his throne. In this life, we make concessions for each other and sacrifice preferences for each other so that we never concede or sacrifice the beauty and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray, God, hallow your name. Make your name holy in all the earth and use us. Send us, God. Use us for your plan. Send us to the farthest places. God, help me not to love Union County so much that I don't love you as you desire. That I don't love the world as you love the world. God, help me not to love my comfort and stability so much that I don't follow you. While God has us where we are. We proclaim the gospel here. And when God moves us, we go joyfully proclaiming his gospel. With every step, with every breath, with every morning and evening, we proclaim our love for him. That he is worthy. That he is the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. I said at the beginning that I want to admire God's beauty and the beauty of his bride, the church. And what I love about God's design is that God's glory shines through his church. That he has not made the church separate of himself, but that he has used and is using the church as a tool to reach the nations. To display his glory to the nations. God displays his glory in the world through his church. As we boldly share the gospel and make disciples, God's glory fills the earth. Church, do you want to see God's glory fill the earth? Then go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that Jesus commanded them. Do you want to see his glory fill the earth? Or is that just something we read about? Is that true in the deepest part of our hearts? Or we just store that somewhere in the memory bank to know it's something that we should agree with. The sunset is amazing. When we think about God's glory, 
we can see a Carolina sunset and be in awe at the colors. The smell of a summer rain, the rolling waves at the beach, the highest mountains, the sound of sizzling bacon. They're good. These are good things. But how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If you want to see something truly beautiful, share the gospel. If you want to see something truly wonderful, go with others and share the gospel. This gospel is truly beautiful because Jesus is alive. All of this is true and wonderful because Jesus is alive. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. The Lamb that was slain is the conquering lion. He lives. The grave could not hold him. Acts 2.24 says that God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Think of the strongest bonds. What is stronger than the chains of death? Not stronger than Christ. Not stronger than our God. It could not hold him. It was not possible for him to be held by that grave. Easter is a statement of the immeasurable beauty of God because Easter celebrates that our God is alive. Truly, there's, there's nothing beautiful about death. There's nothing beautiful about death. A dead God is not beautiful. He's dead. But our God, he's alive. He is risen. And he is beautiful. Our God is beautiful because his love isn't an ancient artifact. God is currently loving you, Christian. His grace isn't in the past. He is actively being gracious towards you. God is beautiful and a true treasure because his mercy is new every morning. His promises are true. He keeps them. He can keep them because he is alive. He sits on his throne in splendor and majesty and he is intimately involved in your life and carefully listens to you when you call on him. This is our God. The hope of the world is that Jesus is alive. That his death was our ransom. His life for our life. And like our Savior, the hope of the world is that the church is alive. That we are not destined for death, but that like our Savior, we will rise indeed. That there is a good future for us. Our God is beautiful and his bride, the church, is beautiful. The church is beautiful because we were once dead in our sin and are now alive. 
Christian, does that resonate with you? It should. You were dead and you are now alive. You will never be separated from God, Christian, forever and ever. The church is beautiful because we are alive in Christ. The church is beautiful because we now take the message of life to the dead. Because now we are the light in the darkness that God is sending out. The church has no beauty if Jesus is dead. In fact, the church is a terrible scam if Jesus is dead. But we trust his word. We trust history. We know that for ages the church has has given themselves to this risen Savior. If Jesus is alive, and he is, the church isn't just beautiful because we are known and saved and loved by God. The church is beautiful because God lives in us. God lives in us. And that's not metaphorical. It's not some metaphor that we pull out of the Bible. It is true that God has taken up residence in his people. It still amazes me at the wonder of that truth. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The risen Lord dwells in you. Just before Jesus was to be taken to be crucified, he had a last supper with his disciples. In his last supper, he reminded the disciples that their life was dependent on his body and blood. That they would be alive because he lives in them. Without his sacrifice, there is no life. That was the message of his last supper. Jesus talked about this earlier in his ministry. If you've got your Bibles open, flip back a few pages to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. He'd done a miracle, and the people were following him, looking for their next meal. And why not? I bet if Jesus made the food, it was delicious. So they're following after him, wondering where the next miracle and the next meal would come from. But Jesus is more than a meal ticket. Jesus told them this in John six twenty six: Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus doesn't just want them to have life temporarily. Not just bread to sustain them for that day. He wanted them to have life eternally. Bread that would sustain them forever. Look at what he says in verse 47. John chapter 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and what happened to them? They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He is the living bread because he is alive. That we might be able to live forever because we have eaten of his flesh and drank of his blood is only possible because he rose from the dead. And even as we read that now, we we could talk about how shocking that would have been historically. That is still shocking. That is still crazy. If you're here and you don't know God or you deny God, you still might say, that is a wild fairy tale that you're preaching up there. And it would be if it wasn't truth. We're not commanded to actually eat or drink his flesh or his blood. But symbolically, he's showing us that. And that if I am not in you, if you are not sustained, if you don't find your life in me, you will not have life. Our life must be from Jesus. When he traveled the hill and carried his cross and hung on that cross for your sins, he knew exactly that he would be purchasing your life. He did it for the joy set before him. He suffered and bled for the joy set before him. And as we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate that his joy was real, that he did rise from the dead, that he does have life. And now he offers that life to you. You say, how does he offer that life to me? He offers it to you in his word. Here it is, this life offered to you. Church, today we're going to drink juice and eat bread in remembrance of what Jesus has done. Like I said, he didn't intend for anyone to literally eat or drink his flesh and blood. He intended for people to rely on his sacrifice for their life. He gave his body and shed his blood so that we could be saved. There's there's nothing special about this bread and this juice. And on your way in, uh, you might have grabbed one of these packets from the table out in the lobby. If you didn't, we have a couple baskets here. You can raise your hand and the guys will find you, or you can even just make your way out to the lobby. None of that is awkward. Um, But we want you to have one of these. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, we want you to have, if you've been saved by his blood, we want you to have one of these to take communion with us. There's nothing special about this bread and juice, but it represents to us that not only has Jesus saved us, he sustains us 
and his spirit dwells within us. His salvation isn't just an outward appearance. It's an inner transformation. Right? That, that our salvation isn't like makeup we put on. It's like food we eat and juice we drink. Communion is a serious moment. We don't take it flippantly. It's set aside for those who believe in Jesus for their salvation. It's only for the church. What a beautiful picture it is, church. That our God would lay his life down for us. That he would sacrifice his body and his blood so that we could be saved. I I think in this picture of blood and bread that we can, juice and bread, we can imagine the goodness of God who loves us so selflessly. He knew that to offer us life, he would have to give up his. He laid himself out on the table for our survival, for our joy, for his pleasure. So Jesus set the precedent of taking the elements of communion and giving thanks and eating and drinking together. So I would like to do that now as well. If you would open the top layer and take the bread from the cup, the wafer. We're going to pray silently together, and then I'll pray over us. And then I'm going to read a short passage and prompt us to take this element together. And we'll do that for both. We'll take some time to pray silently, to pray together, and then I'll read a passage and we'll take the juice as well. But right now, I want you to, to pray, holding this bread in your hand, I want you to pray and thank God for coming and saving, to, for taking your place, for being your ransom, to deliver you from the captivity of sin. He gave his body in your place. Would you take a moment and pray and thank him silently? Thank you for your body. To remember that you are human like we are human. That you weren't immune to pain, suffering. But God, as you were whipped, and as your hands and feet were pierced, and as you suffocated on that cross because of my sin, that your body felt each of those pains. God's prayer doesn't seem like enough, but I thank you. God, we thank you. Your church thanks you for saving us with your body. We pray this in Jesus' name. In Matthew 26, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. You eat the bread together. Will you carefully open the cup? As you hold this juice, 
Consider the lamb that was slaughtered for your sin. That it required his blood. No one else's blood. Only his. And that he didn't begrudgingly shed his blood for you. That he willingly laid his life down for you. Would you take a moment and silently thank him for his blood? Father, think about the Old Testament sacrifices of all the animals that were slain so that people could be right with you. And it was never enough. They would still sin. They would still break your covenant and your laws. All the blood that was spilled throughout the thousands of years. But God, when you sent Jesus... To shed his blood for our sins, it was once and for all. His blood was enough. I thank you for coming for us while we were still sinners and shedding your blood on the cross so that we could be saved. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 27 of Matthew 26, it says, And then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. As we eat and drink of the body and blood of Christ, we not only proclaim his salvation, but we also proclaim that he is coming again. The time is short. Church, and that is wonderful. We are grateful that our God is patient, not slow as some would think, but that he desires that all would come to know him. We're thankful for his patience, but we are ready for his return, that he will come in robes of white to rule and to reign and to take what is his. This God is truly beautiful and magnificent. We run out of adjectives to describe this God. And I, I just wonder whether or not everyone here has believed on him for their salvation. Are you still holding on or clinging to the things of this world that will let you down, that ultimately continue on into death? What are you holding on to for, for life and salvation other than Christ? Nothing else can compete with his beauty and wonder. Nothing else will love you and desire fellowship with you for all eternity like Christ. What is your life for? Jesus died and rose again to make for himself a people devoted to his glory. There is nothing better in this life than pursuing the glory of God. If you would like to be saved, now is a wonderful time. There is never a wrong time to follow after Christ. But here's the thing, there's no magic formula to being saved. He says, believe. 
We read it even here from what Jesus was saying in John 6. Whoever believes has eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus' blood alone for your salvation? What I want to do right now is I want to pray over you. And I'd ask for for your courage. When I'm done praying, I'm, I'm going to head to the back. And I'm going to stand by the exit doors, the double doors. And if you've never believed in Christ for your salvation, and you do now, you're like, I, I do. I, I, want, I want you to come talk to me. Not because talking to me will save you, but because you need to declare, you need to proclaim what you believe. Jesus says that if you're embarrassed of me before men, I will be embarrassed of you before the Father. So I want to encourage you to boldness and courage to proclaim what you believe. I'll be back there, and honestly, it doesn't have to be me. There's a ton of Christians in this room. I'm really thankful to say that. And I bet that you probably know someone near you who's a Christian. They would love to hear that you believe in Jesus for your salvation. Do that today. Don't wait. Let me pray over you. God, we are grateful for this day that we get to celebrate. We call it Easter. But we know that 2,000 years ago, you rose from the grave. God, that's what we celebrate. And we celebrate not, not just today, but God, help us to celebrate that truth every day. That as believers, we would preach this wonderful gospel to ourselves. That we were in sin, headed for death and destruction, but you and your kindness saved us. That you came for us while we were still sinners, died on the cross, and rose again. God, we love you for that truth. We love you that you're so glorious that you would be the God who would do that, that your work flows from who you are. But help us to be faithful. Help us to love you well. Help us to be on mission as you are on mission. Help us to be bold and courageous as you have called us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.